Okay. No one. My stuff. Okay, here's handouts back there if you want them. Okay, let's um, let's hop into this for tonight. Yeah, we'll be in Colossians two, um, starting in verse eight. We've got a lot of verses to cover, which is why your notes look a little strange tonight. But um, long though they appear, I think it's actually going to help us get through this many verses quickly. Um, we are going to have to start covering a little more distance each week in order to finish Colossians on time, which is okay because this is a long section, but it's basically one overarching idea in Paul's letter. He is now, um, he is, we've, we, as we've talked, he's introduced himself as Paul the Apostle. He has gone into the section revering God as the Father, and then he goes into that incredible section talking about Christ the Son, then he goes into this, this uh, brief little passage where he describes himself as the servant of the Son. And then he goes into, therefore, this is how, these are my instructions for you, Colossian church. And now we're going to get into the meat of his argument where he starts to deal with the problem that he's addressing. Again, we have to remember this is not just an isolated um, document that wants to harp on a couple of theological issues. It is an occasional document. It's written with a purpose. And therefore, he is responding to something specific in the Colossian church. And we're going to see today some of the characteristics of what's known as the Colossian heresy, which history has told us is very difficult to wrestle to the ground and understand in, uh, in a very clear form because we're kind of dealing with that one-sided phone conversation. Um, I can't tell you how many times I misinterpret my wife's phone calls because I only hear her side of it. So I've just learned to leave that one. We have a little bit of that issue with the Colossian heresy. We really only have Paul's addressing the problem. We don't have the, you know, for instance, what's being promoted by the, the heretic, so to speak. Um, so that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight. The reason your notes look so strange is, as I, as I said, we have a lot to cover. And so rather than me doing this on my own, finding a way to package it up and then unpackage it for everyone. I'm, I literally gave you the teaching notes. So you guys have the exact same notes I have. I have a couple of scribbles on mine. Um, but these are, this is a breakdown of the text. Um, this is, if, if any of you like English in school, you'll love this kind of analysis of a text. Because what it does is it looks for those fundamental clauses or main ideas in a passage and it breaks it down. And it says, here are, here's the main idea. So in your notes, the main idea is dark, bold. And then all the kind of grayed out sections are the supporting ideas. So this breaks down a lengthy section of Paul going at it into basically six things. He is going to issue a warning and then he's going to back that up with two claims to truth 
and then he is going to give them two instructions, and then he's going to ask a rhetorical, quasi-sarcastic question, which gets into why I love Paul so much. It's very sarcastic. Um, so, that being said, like we tend to do, let's hear the passage on its own in its entirety. I make Kelsey do this every time. We'll give her a break. Someone else read verses 8 through 23 of Colossians 2 for us. Go for it. Eight, yeah, uh, uh, eight through twenty-three. Not sorry, not twenty-two. Okay, this is a passage that has a lot of um, difficult sections when we're asking, what is Paul upset about? He's kind of saying, well, I don't like that you do this, and I don't like that you do that, and the Sabbaths kind of bother me, and by the way, I really don't like that you pay attention to the moons and the way that you do, and it's, it's trying to untangle, what is Paul frustrated with? It's quite clear what he's calling them to, but what is he frustrated with? Um, so, let's go through this passage and break it down a little bit. Like I said, we've got six major sections. Um, this is, I mean, you can find, if you're, if you're interested in reading passages like this, you can find commentaries that do this. They are very, very technical and quasi-obnoxious to read through. Um, 
I just kind of make up my own phrases. All I want to know is each clause, how does it, or each kind of idea and sub-idea, how does it relate to the main idea? And so I just kind of write a word or a couple of words that describes the relationship. So, first of all, Paul issues a warning. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You'll notice as we go throughout that there's a couple of times that this military theme or this military language pops up. And he's going to hold... Uh, taken into captivity over and against the supremacy and the rule of Christ, which will be um, a, a con comparison that Paul's asking us to see. See to it that no one takes you, to, takes you captive. How would they take you captive? Well, by philosophy and empty deceit, Paul says. You'll see as we walk through the whole um, text, Paul doesn't dislike philosophy as a discipline. He's not saying... Um, the higher ways of thinking through things are inherently bad. He says, philosophy that is empty, philosophy that is deceptive, philosophy that, if you jump down to line 8a, is not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive by that kind of way, that kind of thinking, that kind of deception. So where does this philosophy and empty deceit come from? It comes from human tradition comes from human tradition. Paul is going to hold this over and against the real tradition that is given from outside of humanity. Um, he also, I think, is echoing some of Jesus' own frustrations with the religious leaders of his time. Would someone kindly go to Mark chapter 7 and read the first eight verses for us? You'll hear Jesus issue a very similar complaint against the Pharisees. Someone read Mark 7, verses 1 through 8. Got it. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes... Did you say Matthew or Mark? Mark. Okay. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is but their heart is far from me. Today do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus makes a claim very much like Paul does here. Paul says, Don't be taken captive by silly philosophy and deceitful thought that comes from human tradition when it runs in opposition to the things of God. Same concern Jesus had for the Pharisees. And he expands that a little bit and he says, this human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now we've come on a bit of a confusing phrase. There are um, a host of ways you could think through what it, he means when he says the elemental spirits of the world. There's three uh, most prominent views in scholarship. The first being that he's talking about the actual like elements of the earth, something of a, uh, um, a, a more of a pagan worship of earthly things, like there's some sort of um, deity in the actual earth. 
I think that that's kind of a weak reading of the text, but that is a, that is a rather popular option. The second option are the, that these are the basic worldly teachings. Um, contrary to the things of Christ, these will be the basic um, kind of carnal teachings of the world. Uh, I, I think that we'll see as, as Paul continues to describe this that it, it might, yes and no. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that and I, I line myself up with the third option that he's talking about the elemental spirits of the spirits of the world that run contrary to the things of God. I think that Paul is dealing with an issue of spiritual warfare. And this is where like we get real nervous to, to walk. That is, seems like a really unsturdy plank in the treehouse to us. We do not want to put a lot of weight on that. Um, but Paul really doesn't shy away from this idea that there is an inerrant uh, or an innate like evil spirit behind things, an ev- a sense of evil that is of a supernatural sort that runs behind things. Because look at how he, because it's not according to Christ. And this is why I don't like talking about evil spirits. Because I've convinced myself that there are three categories of, of existence. For Jesus, completely against Jesus, and relatively agnostic. And the Bible doesn't give us those categories. You are with or against Jesus, you are for the good, or you have aligned yourself with evil. There is no middle ground in the Bible. And there really is, Paul is probably more stark than any. There's no middle ground. And, And I think that the rest of the text is going to help support this idea that when he says this empty human tradition, he's saying, in a nutshell, it's a demonic idea. That is, the, that is the genesis of such things. Just like on the other side, the, the good, like that is, a, that is a holy, God-given thing. What is the root of your traditions? Is it evil or is it good? Is it demonic or is it heavenly? And I think Paul is saying, like, you've fallen for something that is dark and wicked. That is, in contrast, not according to Christ. Then he explains why being um, rooted in Christ is so important. For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, The whole fullness, this idea of um, totality, of sufficiency, that there is nothing else, nothing in a a human-based tradition that is needed. It It is fully provided in Christ. And then he gets to that it dwells, like the, the deity dwells bodily. Um, without going into the host of options that Paul could mean here, I really think he's just talking about the historical reality of the Incarnation. He's saying that the, the human traditions you go after, as he said in last week's text, in the first seven verses of chapter 2, that goes along with this silly, empty speculation that has no basis in fact. There's no reality that undergirds it. He says, contrary to the truth that I have been preaching to you, that and rather than empty philosophy, rather than empty deceit, I have a true risen Christ. Ask the eyewitnesses who was incarnate, walked this earth, who is real. And in Him, God actually dwelt. And then He expands that a little further. And you have been filled in Him. The historical reality of the incarnation that Jesus really did take on human skin means everything for the church. Because Paul says, and don't forget that God dwelt in human flesh and therefore He can actually take up residence in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. 
He describes that a little further. Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. It's interesting that he starts the section by, don't be taken captive as if there's someone who could like lay claim to you, who is powerful enough to enslave you. You're filled, <laughs> you're filled with the one who holds all rule and authority. Why would you go after such a worldly thing? You have it all in Christ. Then he's going to substantiate this warning with a couple of truths. He says, let me remind you of some things. In Him, in Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Um, again, we've come across a, a bit of a weird verse, but let's, let's talk about what he's, what he's dealing with here. The fact that he's saying a circumcision made without hands is... Um, He's talking about something clearly beyond the physical act of circumcision. He's talking about something that obviously cannot be given by mankind, is not from humanity in any sense. It's talking about some other kind of circumcision beyond the physical that comes from without, that comes from God Himself. And we have some very, very powerful passages. Um, I've been hanging out with Anthony too long. I'm using the word powerful. Um, very rich passages that describe this circumcision, and it's not even a new idea. One of the most important chapters for an Israelite in the Old Testament, their Bible, would be Deuteronomy 30. And it's as soon as Deuteronomy 30 that God is already foretelling a circumcision that's not physical, and a circumcision that does not come from mankind. Somebody kindly head over to Deuteronomy 30 and give us the first six verses of this very, very important passage. Anthony's been chomping at the bit to read this one. I thought earlier he was going to pull out like a Bible made in the 1500s right off of Gutenberg's press. So that is 1,500 years before Jesus shows up. Um, Almost 1,600 years before Paul starts to write anything. You have a circumcision that is not made by a priest or a moil, for those of you that like Seinfeld. It is not made by any human being and it is not physical. This is a circumcision, if you follow kind of the story of Deuteronomy, this is what takes place after I've given you the law and I know you're not going to keep it. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to bring in foreign armies and they are going to discipline you. I will restore you, bring you back into your land. And guess what? I'm going to circumcise you in a way you've never been circumcised. I'm going to 
cut your heart. I'm going to shape your heart such that you will then obey me and find life. That's Deuteronomy 30. 500 years before, G- before David takes the throne, that's what kind of circumcision they're talking about. And this is what Paul is referencing. Not only in Colossians, and certainly not only in Galatians, uh, in Galatians where he gets real upset over an abuse of circumcision, but too in Romans. Let me see, Romans 2. Let's see here. I'll read this, Romans 2, starting in verse 25. Paul says, For circumcision is, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, for every human being that's ever walked the planet, your physical circumcision means nothing. So, if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as a circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision break the law. And here's the, here's the point. For, one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, and nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And all this, Paul says, and this comes through Jesus. In Him, you were circumcised. In Him, Deuteronomy 30 has taken place. In Him, Romans 2 is now a reality. In Him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands from God Himself. How did this come about? Paul says, by Christ, or by putting off the body of the flesh. He says, by dying, in some sense, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we are not circumcised in our hearts because of Christ's physical circumcision at, uh, as, a, as a young Jewish boy. This circumcision, I'm convinced, is actually talking about Christ's work on the cross. And you might say, okay, Ryan, you're reading a whole bunch into it. Circumcision as a physical act is a way of initiating someone into the family, as a way of giving you a new identity. You would do it naturally for Jewish boys as they are born, but if you're, non, if you're a Gentile and you want to become a Jewish convert, you would go through all these steps and then you would be circumcised. You are initiated into the family. You now have a new identity as one of God's chosen people. Now, what act does that for Paul's audience? Christ's atoning work on the cross. And I'm not willing to read this far into the text, but I found more than one commentator who I couldn't, I couldn't, for all I could tell, they weren't using the same source. They would draw a parallel between the, um, the scarring that comes with circum- physical circumcision and the scarring that comes with crucifixion and say both of them are a way of putting a new identity on someone. And he says here, we get our circumcision from God by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I believe that's His work on the cross. When did this happen? Having been buried with Him in baptism. I'm not going to belabor um, the point on baptism. Anthony's going to talk about that a little further. But the point he's making here is that death no longer reigns in us. You have died to something. Read Romans 6 for a great, great passage on um, baptism and how that 
connects to the actual death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is an act where we are initiated into the family. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, dead to sin, alive to Christ. How did that take place? Through faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, what kind of powerful working of God? That work that raised Christ from the dead. Um, our hearts have been circumcised by the very same power that made Jesus not dead and forever alive. Which tells you something of how powerful Deuteronomy 30, Romans 2, and Colossians 2 are when they talk about this circumcision of the heart. Flip to the back. Gets to the second truth. He gives a bit of a concession beforehand. And you who were raised in your trespasses or who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Like he said, I know that what I've described didn't used to be you, but now God made you alive together with Jesus. The same God that raised Him from the dead has made you alive together with Him. How did He do that? Having forgiven all us all our trespasses, and then He explains it a little further, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul is going to talk about... Um, the work of the cross in two ways. And these are two um, atonement theories. And I, don't know, I, I don't even like using the word theory. They just seem to be fact to me. But um, These are two ways of describing Christ's work on the cross, which is the atonement. There is the penal substitutionary to substitution. Penal, meaning that there is a legal transaction going on, the penal system, and substitutionary means that someone is interacting with the, the legal system on my behalf, in my place. He says, he, for, he has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside the legal demands he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus dies in my place. He dies the death I should have died and to give me life that I could never have had on my own. He paid a legal cost in my place. Okay, So this is one way that Paul is talking about it, an actual transaction where, where Christ absorbs the wrath that I rightfully deserved on the cross so that I don't have it. He is given my guilt and I am given His righteousness. This is how it works. The substitution goes like that. But look at 15. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Or actually, if you, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Um, this is... What this is describing is the Christus Victor, the victorious Christ. It's a Latin phrase that um, is thrown around. The Christus Victor view of Christ's work on the cross. So, if I say, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? You could say, he, paid, he, he absorbed God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to, to maintain God's righteousness, to maintain His justice. Sin had to be paid for. And either you were going to do it or he was going to do it. And he did it for you, in your place. Okay, that's right. What else happened on the cross? He defeated evil. 
the victorious Christ defeated all these things. This, Paul is systematically explaining why you are foolishly going after these things. I don't have any idea. Why the Colossian heresy is attractive to you, I have no idea. Because you have full life in Christ, you have His righteousness credited to your account now, and guess what? You're fighting for the winning side. He's already defeated everything. The Christus Victor view. He has disarmed all the rulers and authorities that I have to give you a warning that you wouldn't become enslaved to. He's put them to open shame and triumphed over them. So, in light of the fact, so we have two truths that Paul has issued here. He says, you have been given a new heart so that you can live. And he, God has actually made you alive together with Jesus. He says, in light of those two things, command number one, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. Now he's going to start to give us a couple of descriptions of this heresy um, that both help and hurt our ability to understand it. So here are some of the qualifications of, or some of the reasons that um, people were being judged in questions of food and drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those last three are very clearly Jewish concepts. That first one is a little more difficult, although it could be a Jewish issue. It also could be the, the more like animistic, um, natural religions, nature religions, would very much have issues to do with food and drink. There are book after book after book that have been written about this heresy claiming some sort of like Jewish hybrid religion. It's like a blend of... Um, Greek paganism and Judaism that comes to the head and now they're trying to seduce the Colossian church with this. And um, actually Drew mentioned this a couple of weeks ago and I, I looked, I couldn't find any evidence of it either. There's just, like Judaism doesn't do that. <laughs> if anything, Judaism is like the last religion to play nice with other ones. They are so sold out to kind of this inclusive look at themselves, they really don't, even whenever they, the, the Alexander the Great and his, and his boys came down and started to make the world a little more Greek, the Jews fought tooth and nail to maintain their purity. And, they just, and when they sell out, it's for cultural reasons, seldom for religious ones. And so there's this idea that there's a weird Judaism hybrid running around Asia Minor and affecting the church at Colossae is just a little weird. More likely is you have Judaizers coming in. Those who say, if you want to follow Christ, great, you also need to be Jewish. It's more likely that they're there and that you have pagan cults and that you have a host of other religions putting pressure on the Colossian church and the Colossian church is the one that's starting to blend these things into some sort of hybrid. That's much more likely. I know you guys really like, Ryan, really, does this matter? But... I just think that Paul is just issuing a general warning against pressure that's being put on all sides of the church, not just from Judaism. But it would be really tempting to say, okay, well, we got the Jesus thing, and we've got a lot of Jewish heritage in our faith, and I really like you know, the food and drink rituals over here with the more kind of the occult side of things. Let's just blend it all together and play nice with everybody, especially in, you know, we're a small church. We're like the smallest boy on the block, so we've got to get along with everybody. Paul is worried that they're going to cave in that regard, and start to blend these things together. He says, do not let anyone pass judgment on you for dietary customs or calendar observance. Again, Christ is enough. He says, 
in line 17a, these are a shadow of the things to come. A shadow, something fleeting, something transitory, something that is representative of the real thing, but not the real thing. Something that is um, not based in reality, because the substance belongs to Christ. Contrast the temporary, fleeting nature of a shadow with the sure substance of Christ, Paul says. Your, your customs are shadows. You have the real Christ. Don't fall for these things. And verse 18 gives us the second command. Don't let anyone disqualify you. And how would they do that? By insisting on asceticism in the worship of angels. What is asceticism? Let's get a good definition of what does it mean to be ascetic. I'm deaf, so if anyone's saying something, you're going to have to be louder. Asceticism is like being hard on the body. Um, Depriving oneself of pleasure, depriving oneself of basic needs, um, even injuring oneself as an act of piety, as an act of contrition. Um, Martin Luther was famous for going a little far with this before his, his kind of epiphany moment. Um, asceticism is, is something you do to demonstrate extreme humility in the face of something greater. You torture your body, you deprive yourself of food, you injure yourself. He says people are insisting on that and the worship of angels. Um, this is again the, the... You can go to some obscure Jewish references to this. I think this is the Colossian church starting to blend a number of religious aspects. And it's difficult to pin down if this is Jewish or not. I don't really think that either way is all that important. He says, this is what it sounds like. And he describes it. They go on in detail about their visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind or by his carnal mind or by his worldly fleshly mind. This is the irony of this empty deceit and this foolish philosophy. You will insist that people should embrace asceticism, a discipline that tortures oneself in an effort to show humility. And Paul says, in all the while being puffed up without reason. Paul says, the system is foolish. It's, even, it's inconsistent. What asceticism is intended to produce is not being produced. It's, you are showing contrition, which leads to pride. How foolish. You get there by not holding fast to the head, as it says in verse 19. That's the deficiency of the false teaching. Not that they use philosophy. I am pro-philosophy. I think Paul was too. But philosophy that doesn't hold fast to the head, to Christ Himself, is just empty, foolish. And he describes the head a little further. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Paul then gives a condition. If then... With Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of the world. He says, if you have changed teams, if you have defected from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven, here's the question. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
why do you as a king, as a member of the kingdom of heaven, still act like you live in the slums? Still act like you are a member of the kingdom of darkness? It's ridiculous, Paul says. Then he gives a couple of illustrations of these ridiculous regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are so worldly. These are referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings, which Paul is yet to be a fan of. He said, I'll give you this. They do have an appearance of wisdom. They do sound wise as they promote (laughs) self-made religion. Asceticism, which Paul has not looked on finally, and severity to the body. <laughs> this is, I think this is Paul's some not so subtle sarcasm sleeping out, or slipping out. This is, this is, this looks really wise if you want a man made religion. Like that's what that, that's how wise this looks. And he finishes, he says, there's no value in stopping the indulgent flesh. It's as if Paul is saying, you guys are trying to do something to. Stir up in your hearts an ability to live in accordance with the kingdom of heaven, in accordance with Christ's will. He says, why are you looking to these empty places where it's just shadows, empty philosophies? He says, the mystery of God, as we talked about last week and the week before, has already been revealed in Christ. You have already have a new circumcised heart and you've already been made alive together with Him. Why do you think like, not eating meat is going to help. This is Christ, I mean, that's, that's the message here. Christ is more than enough for these things. And anything that doesn't include Him, uh, and Him alone, I would say, is just foolish and empty. Um, this passage is, is, it's easy to get lost in this passage, because Paul has a lot of complaints. Go figure. He's got a lot of complaints. But the basic message is, you do not, and this is verse 8, don't be taken captive because you are on the side of the one who holds all rule and authority and he's more than enough. And he's already made you alive. So stop trying to find life in other foolish things. Take three to five minutes and... uh, Use restroom, whatever, get up, stretch your legs, and then Anthony will get up and share with us for a bit. Magic trick of putting the thing up your shirt. No. Um, okay. Let's uh, jump back in. Okay. So I had the the very hardy task of doing the theological portion for this scripture, and it was it was really a lot because there's a lot to cover, and so um, what I kind of want to leave us with.